Hey, Chrissy here. I am a landscape architect and the owner of Kismet Design. I am a very process-driven designer, and I love sharing what I do and how I do it with anyone who's interested. Reaching your true potential and achieving your own personal goals will not happen by chance. You have to set your intentions, make a plan, and do the work. Thank you for joining me to nerd out on design. Don't forget to subscribe and to share too. Let's create something great together. I am really excited today to welcome Kevin Monahan to the podcast. He is the owner of Avalon Northwest, a landscape construction company based in Seattle. He works closely with designers in the area to bring their designs to life. He and his team are an uber talented group of craftsmen with some really amazing work. I get the chance today to pick his brain on the perspective of a contractor on the super valuable relationship between a contractor and a designer and how that brings projects to life and how that develops the best possible outcome and experience for clients, which is what we're all after anyways. Kevin and his team are very talented and have the fantastic opportunity to work with some really brilliant designers. And Kevin himself has a really good, very strong design background as well. And so the projects that they work on are truly magnificent. So be sure to check out his website. So to start, I would love for you to share your background in the industry and the evolution of your business from design build to getting into build only. Okay. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, yes. Uh, you know, I started out as just doing build. Uh, so I went through degree and then I came to Seattle and started working for somebody else. And we, uh, we, you know, we just built landscapes for other designers. We ended up starting a partnership, me and my foreman from this other, this first company in Seattle, we started a company together called it Avalon and we were just building other people's designs for as one crew for about four years or so before I felt confident enough to do my own designs so then we split up into two crews I ran a design build portion of the company and he kept uh, my partner Keith Jellison kept uh, building with other designers that we knew and we did that for 10 years before we split up um, he went his way going to the east side doing the same thing uh, and then I bought Avalon from him and both crews wanted to stay with me. So I had these two crews to keep busy. This is in 2013, the fall of 2013. And it was very scary. And, but I just become a part of APLD about a year earlier. And so I started working the relationships I built, I was building then. And luckily, um, you know, jobs start falling in and uh, I stayed busy doing that for, um, well, until now. Uh, we, we went down to one crew a few years ago and now we're just one crew now. Like we're not trying to grow or anything. We're just trying to make sure that the people who are working with Avalon are making money in Seattle, which isn't easy. And we, uh, we've built ourselves up into a spot where we can do really big jobs that make money. And so even though this, we're a very small company now, uh, we remain profitable. So lucky. 
going from two crews to one, do you find that that's makes it so that you can provide a better product being more involved and not having to split yourself in two different directions? Absolutely. It's it, the, uh, the biggest thing was it improved my quality of life because I was, you know, raising a family, but also spending all my time, especially when I was doing design build, that was more work doing design build than it was building for two crews. Um, it's just the, the handholding of the clients was a whole lot of work. And a lot of it happened late at night when I wasn't working on the projects. And so not a lot of sleep. I wanted to change that. And, uh, and it turns out, um, I can't remember exactly what your question was, but going, but removing design from my job, uh, freed up a whole lot of sleep <laughs> attention to, to give to other people. Yeah. And so the smaller the crews got, the better we were at customer service. Um, because I had one crew, as soon as I got one one client to pay attention to, then it was great. I was no longer going to be in pulled. Usually if, with the two crews, you have one great crew and you kind of let them do their thing and you don't pay attention enough. <laughs> and the other crew you're a part of, you know. And so when, when the crew that needed me a lot just kind of dissolved because um, people that used to work with us, we trained up going their different ways, raising their families in other parts of the country where, you know, we supported all that, but then when we went down to one crew, it was great, just so good, because then I could be a part of everything, and uh, and the clients got all my attention. In taking design out, do you miss design, or do you still feel like you're creative enough in other ways that you don't feel like that's missing? Uh, well, it was tough at first. It was tough at first because... I did miss it. I missed it a lot. There was like, there, there was a creative part of it that just, it happened late at night and it became, you know, it, I, I started to not like it very much because of the, the timing of it. But the reality was I missed it. There was no chance of getting in a magazine or anything like that as a builder. It's all about the create, you know, that's what's honored around, you know, magazines at least is the creative process and, and the visual, the flowers and stuff like that. But what I was really into, which was, space building and stuff and craftsmanship that doesn't get the, the notoriety in the magazines. And at that point I was still thinking about building my business and I was like, Oh, I'm really going to miss out on all this. But so I just, I changed the way I thought about it. And I thought, okay, instead of building a landscape and devoting my time to that, I'm going to actually build the business. Like I'm going to make this business work in a way that it just gives me something to do. So I spent the next couple of years focusing on how to make a good business. And that helped me let go of the design. That's creative in its own right. Right, it's, exactly. There was something that it offered me that helped. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like in with the designers that you work with, when you stopped offering design as a service, did that open up more opportunities to work with other designers? Yes, absolutely. It did. In fact, that was the only way I was going to be able to work with other designers because I just didn't have enough attention otherwise. And it didn't, it didn't seem to fit with the way the, the flow of how I worked um, was going. Because uh, you can't work at night too much with other designers <laughs> as opposed to just the desk. But, uh, but it had to be done. I think almost everything I've done with Avalon, you have to say no first before you can say yes to something else. And it's just super scary. But I kept putting myself in or getting myself into positions where I felt just comfortable enough to start saying no to things, which allowed me to really grow in the way I wanted to. So do you feel like you've gotten to like that 
obviously balance is a constant evolution, but do you feel like you've gotten to that good kind of set point where you feel comfortable with workload and flow and business? Yes. With home life as well. And it's been a few years now like that. As soon as we went from two crews to one, um, the one crew is built with people that we've been working with, you know, for years. And so we are, we're a team now. We're a team that's, we're, we're all on the same page. We all know what we're trying to do. There's only a few of us now. And, but it's been, yeah, my lifestyle since then has been great. Uh, I'm not trying to change anything, just trying to get better at what we're doing now. We're not trying to grow. We're not trying to get smaller. We're just trying to make sure that the, the guys keep getting paid enough to live in Seattle. And it keeps working. Well, I mean, you do beautiful work. So it, you're, you. I would say, one of the most coveted construction companies for landscape in the Seattle area. And I know that there's a lot of us awesome. that would love to work with you and don't have that opportunity. Like I very, I, I, very I say rarely no work in now. Seattle. I know. It's because um, I, I say I, I put all these limits now and, and it's all been for the benefit of our lifestyles. Um, but it does make us a little bit kind of exclusive with working with everybody. But I think that that you know, having the opportunity to say no to things and to really kind of keep your bubble small, I mean, makes life easier. I know for me, yeah. having more projects near me where I'm not having to spend an hour driving or stuck in traffic makes a huge difference for just my mental capacity and my ability to work with the people that I want to work with and not yeah. have to say no as often to really good projects that are close. Right. So it makes a big difference. Yeah. No, I, I, I I'm a big fan of saying no because it lets you say yes when you want to. Yes. <laughs> True. <laughs> so what do you think is the key to the relationships that you've built with the designers that you work with? Cause there's a, a handful of designers that you work with on repeat. What do you think is the, you know, some of the key factors that help build those relationships? I feel like I did something right when I joined APLD and I made it a focus of trying to be helpful to people. Like, I just wanted to say, how can I help? Like that was, I don't know if I read it somewhere or what, but you know, the idea was to create um, a space where jobs would just come to me and I didn't have to go looking for them because that's my job. My job is to get jobs. And that has not been my job for the last few years. The jobs just now happen. And I can just, like, I can't, I have to do other things to be productive. I can't just feel good about getting the jobs because now they just come. And that is freaking brilliant. It's karma. Uh, well, <laughs> well, it could be, but I also like to think that I probably built myself into this. And the way I did it was by making Avalon look attractive um, and offering to do whatever we could to help somebody else out. And so my relationships with designers that are the best are who can help each other the most, you know, like if a designer comes to me and let's say Lisa Bauer, you know, Kevin, I got this project. Here's all this stuff. And she just goes out of her way to make it easy on me. And so then I try to one up her, you know, I just like, <laughs> no, this, I need to make it easy on you. And so I'll just do everything I can to make it easy on her. And she repays that. And, by the time we're done with that, we have a beautiful project and we love each other, you know? So I think finding ways that I could contribute and be generous is how um, has built these relationships that just kind of run it back to me that way. Well, I feel like that dynamic does nothing but just build and create a huge 
like value and experience for the client. Yeah, there's definitely that. Like the, a client gets the idea that, you know, you can see how much I respect the designer, you know, and I make sure that's visible too, because I think that helps me just by helping the designer. As soon as, as soon as the client has complete trust in our ability to get stuff done and to do what she needs and to do it right and to look out for her, then I, then the project is, uh, is great. And with the, with the good designer that I've been working with, um, for a while that happens before the project starts. Like the project that Lisa Bauer we have coming up that'll start in January. The client is like, okay, I trust you too. You know, we've been doing this for months now. I've been working with these other contractors. I have all these problems, but every time I have a problem with you too, it's solved. It's already thought of. It's, you know, it's, so they just have this trust and, um, so good. I need it actually. I need, I need there to be trust for me to enjoy what I'm doing. There's not every designer is super involved in the installation process. As a designer, I feel like there's a huge value to that. But as an installer, what's your thoughts on the involvement or level of involvement of a designer in the, through installation? Right. So once the project starts, there is, like speaking on behalf of the crew, it is nice if we can have if the designer's not even involved at all, like if we have all the answers, boom, because all we want to do is build momentum. What we want to do is just get moving. And that's the only way we're going to make profit. You know, there's two things that we're not going to sacrifice. And that is one is the client's happiness. That's it. That's how we measure everything. If the project uh, doesn't look so good, that's terrible. But if the project loses money, that's fine. If the client's unhappy, that's unheard of. That can't happen. And so the client has to be happy. And number two is it has to be beautiful and he loves it and it lasts forever kind of thing. Um, and so as long as the client's happy, it's all good. I think there's a huge value in that, but there's obviously a, a spectrum of being too involved and yeah. coming on site and changing their mind or adding things or changing. I mean, there's nothing that I despise more than change orders. <laughs> and I assume you're, you feel the same. And so I think that that sometimes can be a tricky part of having a designer involved, but what things do you feel like having a designer involved adds to the value and the ease of your crews to be able to go through installation? Right. So there are things that we, so I gave you the reasons why you wouldn't necessarily want a designer on yeah. board, but we, we demand it kind of. If, uh, not only because it helps the designer because a big part of their income is going to be managing the project, but we want an interface between us and the client in anything that has to do with design or details. Like we don't want to be talking to the client and say, oh yeah, what do you, what do you think about this? That's not our role. Our, all we want to talk to the, and I, I need to have direct contact with the client to talk about scheduling and money. Those two things, everything else I want to go through the designer because, um, I just want one answer. And so it always comes up. There's always something that comes up and uh, many, there's always many things that come up each week. And so we want to have access to the designer that can respond to us. Um, and it's, and it's easy to see when something's coming up and it's mostly around details. Oh, the corner of the bench. Oh, the gate latch and hinges, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, we can anticipate it coming up. I can give plenty of time to the designer to get answers, but I don't want to go through the client. I want to go through the designer. So I have that in my contract and it's on every bid. It's like, this is what we need a client for or a designer for. Please hire them. If you don't, we're going to upcharge you by, a, you know, I, this is 
all this wording is something I've been working on over the last couple of years. And when I first did it, I was like, we're going to upcharge you by 1%. That's not enough. You know, it has to balance what the designer is charging too. And so now we're saying 5% because if you hire a designer, they're typically the ones we work with are going to charge somewhere between five and 10% extra to project manage. And so um, I want it to be somewhere in that realm, maybe on the low end, but look, you, you're getting, you're getting nothing <laughs> and you're still paying, you know, hire the designer. It's going to make the project go so much better. I found, especially with clients that need a high level of touch and information. One of the things that I can add value to my contractors is being that first step in communication so that they don't have to yeah. communicate. And a lot of that is most of the contractors I work with run multiple crews. So their time is spread even more thin. So yeah. being able to communicate, okay, this is what the next step is. This is when this is being brought in. This is when we need you to be available for the electrician to open up your garage, things like that, mm -hmm. that the contractor doesn't want to necessarily be sending those emails at midnight. Yeah. It'd be easier <laughs> if I, he yeah. can call me and, or talked with me on site. And then I can be that, that communicator and make sure that the client gets that level of not necessarily handholding, but level of communication and expectations met without having that tax the contractor. Totally helpful. Yes. <laughs> and same with kind of, I do a lot of initial kind of prepping with the client so that they know what to expect so that once we hit the ground, they kind of know the sequencing of events and know that it's going to look a lot worse before it starts to look better. And that I'll be on site working with the contractor, painting out the lines of the patio three or four times. And that if it doesn't look right, it's okay because it's going yeah. to look right before it's done so that they have, again, that kind of level of, of trust and expectation that you know, nothing is yeah. done until it's Which done. Which is great. You're right. Good. We get the questions like, what? why is the path so big? And I was like, that's actually not the size that will be <laughs> just when we laid up this, the crushed rocket. Yeah. And so, yeah, having somebody interface with that is always helpful. And client engagement obviously has a, a, a spectrum. Like there's some that We'll just leave on vacation, be like, all right, I look forward to seeing it when I when we come back. And then there's others that are, you know, looking through the window eight hours a day <laughs> and sending yeah. text messages and emails like, what's going on? What's next? Yeah. When is this getting delivered? Like all kinds of questions. So I feel like that that can be really challenging, especially when you've got a, a client that really needs a lot of information. Yeah. No, that's when it's most helpful for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, when a client doesn't need much, much uh hand holding, it's still so helpful to have a designer there because we don't, we don't have a good read on the client at that point. And so we're always like, are they happy? You know? <laughs> and so having a designer that, that is constantly informing them what we can't is really good. Well, and I feel like once you've built a relationship with that designer, you, you speak kind of a, a, a mutual language where it's easy to know what their expectations are and they yeah. know what they need to communicate or not communicate with you to make sure that, the outcome that the client expects is there. And I think that that's, to me, that's the biggest value point in having a good relationship with the contractor is yeah. that, that mutual understanding of expectations. Absolutely. Yeah. But that takes time. A lot of time, a lot of projects. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, I suppose it does. But I mean, there, there should be expectations that you can throw out there right away. But yeah, yeah. mostly for, for us, it's like, you're going to say you're going to do something, do it. And the designers we work with are good about that. And that's so important to me. Yeah. <laughs> Do what you say you will and I'm all right. Yeah. yeah. 
I know going to one crew that gives you a little bit more freedom in terms of scheduling. Um, recently I've had projects that have been a biggest challenges doing permits. How is that in terms of scheduling when you've got the permit limbo, especially in Seattle, Seattle is well, challenging with permits. Yeah. So this last, we've been super lucky in that after, uh, when the pandemic hit, we got through that and then like six months later, suddenly everybody wants to build their landscapes. And so once 2021 hit, we got booked out for months and months ahead of schedule. Like right now we are booked out about nine months ahead. Um, and it was more than that before. In fact, I had a project that's kind of falling through that's supposed to go next fall. That'll probably be next winter instead. So I got like one little thing to fill up, but we're, we're booked out pretty far, which means we can get ahead of the permit schedule. And that helped last year where I was like, I'm not going to put a project. I'm not going to pencil pen it in onto my schedule yeah. until we have permits in hand. And it took a year to get the permits. And I was like, Phew, thank God, because <laughs> we've been through that before, before it, you know, yeah. the city got so backlogged that it was to imagine something happening. You usually just go to the counter and now you can't. And now there's the portal. So it's all new, but thank goodness we have enough pushed out in front of us that permits are, um, waiting on them is okay. Cause we're waiting, we're waiting for our, our construction crew to free up to get to the next project. Have you found over the last year, two years that it's been more challenging to bid projects, knowing that they are going to be pushed out a long ways. And then with the giant fluctuation in material costs, or do you just have something written in where once you're within a certain time frame of construction start, things get reevaluated? That's a great question. Starting last spring, I started putting the note in saying material prices. Usually I can bid it and I could, I, you know, within a comfortable margin. Totally. I was like, whatever the price I got was what the price was going to be a year later, but now it's not that. And so I have this one little thing that says material prices are fluctuating. We're going to do anything and I'll give you the list of all the steel and the wood and the concrete and the stone you know, that's going to change. Uh, we're going to track it for what it really is. Here's what the price is now. Here's what it might be. But right now we're just giving the price now. And, um, the project we've done on two projects so far went really well on one and the other one even even better because, um, I overbid something. And, and so it just like, suddenly we were like three or $4,000, uh, ahead. And so then we just start chipping away at that. And it was great. And by the time we got done, they had actually changed one other thing too. So it was like a five grand savings, which was supposed to be a five grand in material yeah. inflation. And so, uh, tracking it worked out really well because then the clients could just make different decisions and, set that expectation. Yeah. But so far we're, we're also very lucky in that our clients are a little bit buffered from, uh, the immediate, uh, economy. Right. Um, what is the, you work a lot with steel more than most other landscape installers. Um, but what other materials, what, what are your favorite things to construct or favorite materials to work with? Started, we, when we started Avalon in the late 90s, we did a lot of stonework. It was almost all stonework and it was almost all natural uh, rock, not rockeries, but just natural stones. Not a whole lot of stone that came on pallets. It was always bulk and we just made it look natural. I mean, I came from the forest and so, and then I went to U of O and so I didn't have an urban background. And so most of my aesthetic was nature and nature influenced. Um, but then 
with the 2000s, suddenly this contemporary movement came along and I started getting older too. So I wanted things a little, I, I think in my own brain, I want things a little tidier and squared up, you know? <laughs> and so uh, as things went contemporary, we started doing more concrete and started introducing ourselves to steel. Uh, always love woodwork. Woodwork's a, a big thing. But so if I took those four things, stone, wood, concrete, and steel, I would say I have a real love for stone, but the guys who I kind of, taught how to do a lot of stonework. Most of the guys have left the company. And so Frazier and Jeremy, who are our crew left, I mean, they're, they're good with any material, but stone's not their first love. It's mine, <laughs> but not theirs. They're good at it, but, um, but they want to, uh, it, the stone is also, it's a craftsmanship thing that you just don't know what you're going to get until after it's done. You're like, Oh, that's how it turned out. Phew. You know? And so with, you know, that doesn't appeal to a lot of people. Uh, it's nice to have just check boxes and know it's like, this is perfect. And so um, instead of the puzzle with yes. no pattern. <laughs> yeah. Like when I go to Marinacos, it's always, um, I'm looking for stones, you know, and I always, it always works out. Like when I'm done, it's like, oh, that worked. But when I'm there, it, it's awful. It's like, how am I going to make this work? It's always settling on a stone. It's like, I'll settle on this one, you know, and I have it all designed, but I was like, it's all settling. And then when I finally get it in there, it looks good. And so I can see how stone is just difficult for people. Um, so as we moved away from, or doing different things besides stone, first we started using more square stones and tightening, you know, getting the stones tighter. Um, but then we started doing more concrete and concrete is its own special thing because it takes, it takes knowledge and it takes a, a personality to work with concrete. I can't stand it myself. Not a fan of concrete. I lose a lot of sleep over concrete. <laughs> you can't fix it. Yeah. <laughs> you get one shot and however it turned out is how it turns out. And I am, my personality, which is uh, a struggle for me and especially a struggle for the crew, is I can't leave good enough alone. <laughs> I get to something and I was like, ooh, that's 99% good. <laughs> and I'll start messing with it and screw it up. <laughs> so so uh, I battled that. And so concrete's a real chore for me. Uh, but Jeremy and Frazier are very good at it, even though we only do it a few times a year, which is the other problem is that you do concrete, you do it and you get everything done and you realize, oh, I remember 97 out of the 100 things I was supposed to remember. And so three of the things could have been better. And that happens with everything that you only do a few times a year. And concrete's one of those. You know, we have all our own, I mean, it takes all its own tools and stuff. It's just, it's crazy. And it's hard to work with concrete contractors because they're all kind of intimidating and just want to do their own thing on their own schedule, their They're own special time. breed of people <laughs> yeah. in themselves. Yeah. Cause you see, these guys have to deal with stress every day. And so the way they manage that, I don't know, they have their own ways of doing it, but I couldn't. Yeah. And so we, we do it because we have to nowadays, but we're not a big fans. I mean, it's finished concrete. I should say if it's rat slabs or walls or you can, you know, Beautiful. That cuts the that. stress level, especially yeah. with yeah. unpredictability of weather and finished That's concrete is exactly. just And nowadays, you don't even know where you're going to get your concrete from. And so yeah. what this quality is going to be. So that's concrete. Woodwork, probably our favorite thing to do for anybody. There's it's just something about, first of all, you're not dirty. You just <laughs> get up out of, off the ground, which is great for our industry, especially in the wintertime. But there's also, you know, all the tools that deal with woodworking are all kind of like, like, you know, you feel like you're, you know, you got your gun, you got, you got your hammer and it all feels like you're, I don't know, like it's almost like a sport or like a gunslinger, I don't know. <laughs> but there's something about the whole working with the tools and the drills and the saws. It's really, 
pleasant and the smell of the wood. Uh, and then steel, you know, this is something we taught ourselves how to do. Frazier loves it. He just, now he's, he wants to do all the steel. He does all the welding. We put him through classes. So he's in learning all about steel finishing, even, even all we've had is failures on that, but he's still he's <laughs> learning about it, you know? And so someday we might be able to do it well, but uh, right now we're just like, no, we don't know how to do it yet, guys. <laughs> um, but steel's fun. The issue with steel is that there's just not a whole lot of, um, information out there on how long it's going to last. Like I'm pretty sure all of our block and stone walls are going to last for a long time. The wood is last as long as the wood can, but still, I don't know how long it's going to last. You know, we're putting a whole lot of quarter inch plate in and it's just raw, mild steel and we put good drainage behind it, but no one's ever shown me a 30 year old wall that I could go look at and say, Oh, that's how it works. Right. <laughs> so, so I'm hoping for the best. We're doing everything the best we can. The, you know, we're thinking it through. We're like, okay, hopefully this works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of things are like that anyways, but yeah. Wood, especially, you know, which woods are going to last longer, you know, but are there, um, are there any materials or any skills that you are looking to add to your repertoire? Um, only as demand requires it. Um, because we like to do everything in house. If, if we can get away with no, subcontractors, that's great just for scheduling because right. I mean, our goal being keep the client happy. You know, you start messing with the schedule with subcontractors. It just, it kind of messes with all of our control over keeping the client happy. Yeah. And so we try to do everything ourselves and things we can't do right now were ornamental ironwork, although we're doing it. <laughs> we're starting to like working this on it. Yeah. We're putting in the handrails and the guardrails of the steps and stuff. And so, that may be a thing where we no longer say we can't do anymore. And then large concrete flat work like driveways or lots of steps. You got to know what you're doing to get, you know, more than four steps done at once kind of thing. And so, and those aren't things we want to get. The concrete thing isn't something we want to get better at. You know, it's like, we'll just, if we come with more, we'll yeah. just have to hire somebody or to say that's not the right project for us. Cause we can do that now. <laughs> we're fortunate enough to be like, you know what? It's too much concrete in the project for us. This is probably better to go with somebody else. Um, so that's, we're really fortunate that way. Yeah. Mostly we're thinking about vertical surfaces when we start talking about things you notice, you know, there is, you can see a cool patio once in a while, but for the most part, the things you walk on aren't as cool as those things that you are retaining and blocking. Right. So. What about um, like green walls and green roofs? Is that something you've done much of? I know yes. there's a lot of it in Seattle, but. I've failed at least a half a dozen times. <laughs> That's how you learn. <laughs> yeah. we, we've done one green roof back in 2011 and uh, we helped install it um, because we just didn't know what we were doing. And in fact, if I had to do it again, we wouldn't even have helped. We would have just watched because it all went wrong. You know, all we did, we put the irrigation in and we did what we thought we had to. And we, then we, uh, helped with some drainage, but the people who actually put in the, the flats of green roofing, there's, it, it just doesn't work sometimes, you know, it just all became weeds and the irrigation wasn't exactly what it should have been. You know, it should have been run a little more regularly kind of thing. And so there's just so much we didn't know about it that I'm so glad that we didn't get caught up in trying to fix everything that went wrong. And so it was, that was a good lesson in if I'm going to do something new, 
Let's see if I can watch it first, you know, come yeah. around from the edges a little bit and then dive in. And so that was our green roof experience. Green walls, um, I put in a green wall. It did okay. It, it was facing east and it had a lot of issues, but the homeowner worked with it. So we did another one that was facing west. It lasted one season and just dried out. We tried to get it to go another season, just complete failure. We did something else. We got rid of it, put something else in for that client. So that was two. That was that was one okay, one strike. And then I put another one in at my house. It's making a mess all over. I redid that with some trays. And then I just did another one for a client who's been a client for a long time. And I, you know, I'm warning her like, we don't know what we're doing. This is, <laughs> this is my best guess at how we're going to make this thing work. And we did this freestanding steel thing with aluminum trays, powder coated in black, put all this um, irrigation and soil and drainage in. And it looks great right now. We'll see how it goes through the winter. We'll see how the watering goes through next summer. But, um, but if I had to do it again, I would have probably done it differently as well. As well. Right. You know, there's so much... I don't know. Even bigger learning curve than concrete. Oh, uh, yes, because um, there's nowhere, there's no one to ask, really. I mean, the, the ones that look the best are the ones that you can buy that have this, the cells, like the one-gallon things that you hook on trays, because that answers all the questions, except how does it look? And it doesn't look very good. Yeah. <laughs> but, but everything else, you can replace plants. The irrigation is there. There's enough soil to make a plant get through the summer, but it just looks terrible. And so, except for at the Amazon spheres where they have enough foliage to right. cover all that. But and maintenance. And maintenance, yeah. <laughs> right. I find that yeah. those things are, you know, a lot of it is hinging on maintenance and clients yeah. that are willing to either hire it or be engaged enough to, I mean, like yeah. any, like any garden. I mean, even yeah. you go back a year later and some gardens look beautiful and are really well maintained and loved and. Others, you're looking around at the weeds going, oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now that you say that green roofs, green walls are something that I'm going to continue to try. Yeah. If, if, even if it's just for, you know, when I retire, you know, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I just love the idea of yeah. that being, um, they're just, yeah, I mean, you can make a wall look really good if you have plants to work with. Yeah. Well, especially for... In Seattle, you work in a lot of smaller spaces. So really maximizing right. every square inch, I mean, being able to go vertically gives yeah. you a lot more opportunity where, you know, a lot of my projects are you know, an acre or more. So right. you wouldn't, you know, there's not as much call for, you know, really maximizing every right. square inch as much as there is in, you know, smaller lots. So yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. There is a space, there is a place for green walls in Seattle. So to circle back to working with designers and how how that process and evolution comes about when you are what at what point are you brought into the design process? Is it once the design is complete or are you engaged in helping with budgets and that throughout the process to kind of maintain that expectation all along? Since we're booked out so far. Designers that we work with now are trying to get on like, okay, I have a project that's good fit for you. I need to do a little bit more design on it, but then I want you to get in here and have a look at it and see if it's the right fit. Cause then I want to be you know, going on your schedule. And so as soon as there's a concept plan, I, I would love to get involved at that point, just to give a ballpark estimate to say, okay, here's, 
here's what you want to do. Okay. And these are all the elements. Okay. I'm going to put together a total comprehensive, you know, scope of work and just throw a typical square foot costs at them. And that, then it comes up. And so a typical project for us is somewhere between 200 and 300,000 or so. And so, you know, we come up and it says, okay, 250. It's like, is that what the client wanted? And they're like, oh yeah, that's kind of what they had in mind. And so then the designer goes back with this idea that they can design exactly what they've already had in mind or, or not. If the client says, oh, I want to cut some things out. Um, but that happens all before they do anything more than concept plan, because then they can go forward uh, confidently, like, okay, I'm designing something that's going to get built. And then I can put them on the schedule saying they're design, designing something yeah. that's going to get built, you know, because, yeah. and I'll, I'll even overprice my ballparks just because I don't want to put somebody in my schedule. That's not, that's going to pull out later. Right. And so I need to make sure that that, and so I'll, I will say, it's going to be, it could be as much as this. Like, oh, that's fine. Okay, then. Yeah. then we're working together. And it's just a matter of you figure out, you know, with the designer, what you want to build and I'll just price it. Well, not, I think as a designer is really helpful in having that gut check of, yes, we're in the right spot, keep moving forward or having the opposite conversation of, okay, it's going to be more than what you have budgeted. These are the things that either you have to sacrifice or do later or, change material options, things like that. But then also on a contractor's end, it's nice to kind of know what you have in the queue coming up. Yeah. And my whole point of that is just to remove uncertainty. For me, I want something to build. I want, I'm just filling up my schedule, right? That's my job. Yeah. Get the next job. So, so that removes uncertainty for me. For me, for the client, they want to know how much it's going to cost. Give them that certainty and the designer wants to know what to design them. Because otherwise, I'll just I'll be spiraling with the designer. Like, well, she doesn't like, you know, I don't know if she wants to spend this. Like, ask. <laughs> yeah. Let's find out. Yeah. Tell me what you want. I'll price it. I'll put it in front of her and see if she likes it. And if the client likes it, great. We're doing it. So, yeah, just remove the uncertainty. That's, that's yeah. the goal. Yeah. I, I think it's helpful for everybody. And I feel like it makes the experience for the client so much better. Knowing yeah. ahead of time instead of have a design that they fall in love with that, you know, they're thinking is going to be a hundred thousand. That's actually 200,000. Right. And then they're disappointed. Yeah. And then you're trying to kind of backtrack and salvage something <laughs> of the design that they love, even though they can only get half of it. <laughs> yeah. So that's, so, so I'm, I'm brought in, you know, at the concept stage and then I'm just questions are bounced off the time between then. And when I finally bid, when the master plan is done. So lastly, before I let you go, um, what is your favorite part of your job? My least favorite part of my job is bidding because the uncertainty I'm guessing, yeah. just guessing, 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 but I'm pretty good at it. And so it's not terrible, but I don't look forward to it. My favorite part is getting in the truck and driving to the job site. Just, you know, cause nowadays I don't, I'm not digging the ditches so much anymore when I go and work on the job sites. Cause I feel like working. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, I want to get out there and do some work, you know? And, and so I love it. Like the other day I just, I was driving to work and I kind of checked in with myself. It's like, why am I enjoying driving to work right now? It's like, oh, I'm looking forward to it. This, you know, it's great. But then as soon as I have to go do a bit, I'm like, eh, I don't want to, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just being on the job site and, and hanging out with Frazier and Jeremy and building something that we know is going to look great. Yeah. That's my favorite part. Well, I think part of it is getting outside too. You know, when I spend too much time at my desk, I start to get a little stir crazy and I need to get outside. And so 
plant shopping, plant set days, oh, always like you're, just. You're right. Going to the nursery. Nursery yeah. days are great. But just, yeah, having somewhere to go is nice. Yeah. <laughs> get out of the, get off the computer, off the desk. Yeah. yeah. Out of the house. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Well, thank yeah. you so much yeah, for doing welcome. this. This was fantastic. Oh, I had a great time. I appreciate all your insight yeah. and uh, look forward to talking again, hopefully soon. Okay. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was fantastic. I know everyone that listens is really going to love the conversation and be inspired. A couple takeaways that I think are really valuable to point out is the conversation about getting good at saying no really opens up opportunities for you to say yes to things that you really want to say yes to. And then building relationships with other designers just by being helpful and putting yourself out there and adding value to what they do in turn adds value to both of you. And then building trust, which again, kind of circles back to that being helpful. Building trust amongst the people that you work with helps build trust amongst your clients so that everyone can deliver a better product. Also, you did mention Lisa Bauer a couple times. She is fantastic and an amazing designer. And to give a little teaser to everyone that's listening, I have an episode coming up where I get a chance to talk to Lisa. So you'll get to hear from her as well. So stay tuned. Make sure to look at Kevin's work. His website is avalonnw.com and you can find him on social media at avalonnw. He does fantastic work and you can see some of the materials that he's talked about, some of the woodworking and especially some of the really interesting steel that he's used in his projects. To wrap up, I want to thank you for your time. I hope the ideas discussed today have left you feeling excited and energized. As I build both my business and my life, I value the support and feedback you provide. I would love for you to reach out to me to let me know what you think, give me ideas, or just to connect. Please don't forget to subscribe and also share with a friend. Until next time, go create something wonderful.